Well, good morning. Yeah. My name is Brandon. I am the pastor of preaching and vision here at Sojourn Heights. As he said, we've been in a uh, series on the book of Malachi. Malachi is part of what we call the Old Testament. Uh, the Old Testament is the part of the Bible that's, that's pre-Jesus, what led up to Jesus, and it's really this, this narrative, the story about this nation of Israel. Um, and uh, we've gone Malachi 1 and 2, and as he said and read, we're diving into Malachi 3 today, so let's get started. I have a, uh, I have a four-year-old son. <coughs> I have a four-year-old son that we, uh, we enrolled this week in a two-day-a-week private school. Uh, and the thing about my son is that he's cute, and he's fun, and he laughs, and he's got this smile, but, but he can also be what, uh, what might be identified as obedience-challenged. And so uh, we, we send him off for first day of this two-day-a-week private school, not private school, preschool, I'm sorry. Uh, and on Tuesday afternoon, I go to pick up my son, Uh, And I pick him up, and I get a note sent home uh, about his first day of school. It's kind of a behavioral report card, if you will. Uh, And this is what it said. Raise his hand. No. Wait his turn. No. Sit during instruction time. No. Follow three-step instructions. No. Need verbal reminders. Yes. Speaking out of turn. Yes. And so we get in the car, and I said uh, to my son, I said, hey, hey, bud, do you have to obey your teachers? Easton, yes. All right, son, well, are you going to obey your teachers on Thursday? Easton, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know, Dad. I don't do that's kind of philosophical two days from now, hypothetical. I don't really do that, Dad. I, I need real, actual question. I, <laughs> I was like, then we stopped. I spanked him on the side of the road, and we went on about our life. I didn't really do that. <laughs> I, did, I pulled into a parking lot. That's where I spanked him at. <laughs> so, these are not complex ethical questions uh, for my son for obedience, right? Raise your hand. Wait your turn. That, that for Easton, even at four, disobedience to his teachers is a conscious choice. He is choosing to not obey his teachers. And here, here's the point. Um, two weeks into Malachi, Malachi 1 and 2, uh, we, we said that uh, Israel entered into this long season of what we've called mission drift. That there was this time when Israel was captive to Babylon. They were in this Babylonian captivity. And then they were sent back from Babylon to Jerusalem uh, to rebuild the temple. And in rebuilding the temple, they were to establish the presence of God. But then they were to live out the presence of God and be a distinctive people among the nations. But but now about 100 years has passed and Israel has started to drift. They, they have started to drift from God toward the nations. And a few examples Malachi has given has been, you, you guys have offered offerings that you should have never offered. Garbage offerings, if you will. Um, hey, you started marrying to, to, to identify with other people's gods. Uh, and hey, listen, you, you, you divorced for reasons that were profoundly unbiblical. Israel had drifted from God toward the other nations. So they were meant to be, designed to be, called to be by God a distinctive people. And now they were no longer a distinctive people. And this drifting in Israel was a result of disobedience. You see, the the thing for Israel wasn't that they didn't know the law. It it wasn't, hey, I I, I don't really understand, God, what you want. That, That wasn't the problem. The problem for Israel is that Israel was Easton. Easton is Israel. 
consciously choosing to disobey, consciously choosing, all right, God, I'm, I'm going to obey this and I'm not going to obey this. At the root of their drifting was a disobedient heart. But also, Malachi has said, hey, listen, if we, um, we kind of take your disobedience and we go down a level, we, we take it underneath that, uh, here's what Malachi 1 and 2 has said, hey, listen, you've, you've won, uh, you've forgotten my unconditional love for two and in two, uh, your, your story has shifted from God is for you to God is against you. But here in Malachi 3, this is what, what's about to happen. Malachi 3 is going to take us underneath the issue, below the issue, below the issue. And he's going to say, hey, even you're forgetting the unconditional love, my, my love for you, or even, even your story changing to I'm against you uh, has a root cause to it. And Malachi 3 is taking us to the root cause of the drifting of Israel. And so let's get started. Verse 1. Behold, behold, I send my messenger. And he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire like a fuller's soap. Now, if we want to get to uh, the, the, the root issue in Malachi, if we want to get to the actual problem at the core of Israel that Malachi is speaking into, we have to ask first, not who this messenger is, but why is he coming? Why? Why is this messenger coming? What is this messenger coming to do? Um, and this will take us to the root cause of Israel's drifting. Verse 3. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And here it is. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. And the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. So what was this messenger sent to do? He was sent to purify the sons of Levi. Now, this is a major shift in the book of Malachi. First, verse 1 is a massive shift. Verse 1, it, it's been pretty bleak so far. Chapters 1 and 2 have been pretty rough. Not a whole lot positive to say. Not a, not a whole lot of hopeful insight into the people of Israel. But in verse 1, he says, hey, I'm going to send a messenger. And this is, this is phase 1 of kind of a hopeful turn in the book of Malachi, but, but did you catch verse 3 compared to chapters 1 and 2? In chapters 1 and 2, what was it that needed to be purified? The people or the offering? The offering is the answer. And now in Malachi 3, he's saying, listen, it's not the offering that needs to be purified, it's the people that need to be purified. This is the core issue in the book of Malachi with the people. And you, you can see, if, if you went over to Isaiah and you just read through Isaiah, you would see multiple places where, uh, where, where God would say to his people, hey, hey, listen, that offering that you're offering, look, I, I know it meets the law. Like, I know it meets the criteria. It's the kind of offering I, I say that I want, but I know your heart and I don't want your heart. I, I don't want that offering. I, I think that's a vain offering. I want your heart, I want your worship. So you, you can offer 
a pure offering from an impure heart and it's no longer a pure offering. That's what he's saying to Israel. And I think that's really applicable to us. I think it's excessively applicable to us because it is so easy. And you know this. Like I'm, I'm, I'm on repeat right now, but you know this. You, you know that it's so easy to come in and play the game. Like religion can be a game that we play. It can be this external game that we play, and God is saying, I'm not interested in your game. I'm interested in your heart. I want a purified people. He came to purify a people. That's what the messenger was being sent to do so that Israel would no longer play the game of offering, impure offering, pure offering. He says, I want the hearts of the nation of Israel. That is after a pure people because in a pure heart, he might have a distinctive people. He might finally have a people who are distinctive, who live among the nations but aren't like the nations. And so, so far, he's saying the issue underneath the issue is the impurity of the heart of Israel. And it's going to lead to three, um, three broken relationships. It, it leads to more than just three, but there's three that Malachi is going to give us. Broken relationship number one with the world. Verse five. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers. against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker and his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner. And do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Broken relationship one is with the world. Look at this list from sorcerer to adulterer. Adulterer, those who who tear marriages and families apart to the widow, the orphan, the sojourner, that, that, that Israel had become indifferent to the vulnerable. Those who oppress the hired worker, they exploit people for profit. What, what is this list? This list is a list of how Israel was to engage the world and how they were not engaging the world. And so I, I want to I maybe pause a little bit and I want to address a misunderstanding about Christianity. A misunderstanding about the Bible even. That there's a misunderstanding uh, that there is a sacred and a secular life, right? Or to say it another way, that there's a religious and a non-religious life. And so the idea goes like this, that if you are a Christian, uh, then you have religious things you do, right? So going to church, gathering today uh, like this, this is a religious activity. And then going to work, that's a irreligious or non-religious activity. And, and I want to tell you that the Bible knows no such category. It, it, it knows no such division. Look at the list right here. It, it seems to me that Malachi is as concerned about what Israel did in their workplace as they did in their temple. That's, that's not to say uh, that there's not unique means of grace and activity that happen when we gather together as a church, when we sit under the Word, when we share in the, in the bread and the cup in communion. It's not to say that those aren't unique, beautiful things where God builds up and sustains His church, but what what it is to say is that there is no dichotomization in your life. That uh, a famous story, Martin Luther, Martin Luther is a, a famous pastor back in the day, uh, theologian that we all kind of live in the shadow of, if you will. The story goes like this one time, that a shoemaker became a Christian and went up to Martin Luther and said, hey, hey, Martin, I'm a, 
uh, in, in German, not in English, so I don't really know how to do it. But uh, he went up to him and said, hey, hey Martin, I'm a, I'm a Christian now. What do I do? And Martin Luther looked at him and said, you make a good shoe and you sell it at a fair price. That God is as concerned with how we work as He is how we worship. Because how we work is a reflection of how we worship. There's no dichotomization in our lives. At least not according to Malachi. But apparently that had become a divide in the nation of Israel. And this flows straight into our theme for this book, The Danger of Mission Drift. Uh, because you see, when there is a dichotomization in our life, when we walk into a sacred, secular divide, and we start viewing some activities as religious and some activities as non-religious, what's going to happen is that we're either, either we're going to assimilate with society or we're going to withdraw from society. And, and God cares how we engage with the world around us. God, God knows that for Christians there is a tension that we're supposed to live in. Now, we're supposed to live in this tension because we're among and around and engaged in the society that we're among, but we're not to live like the society that we're around and among. That God cares how we engage with the world around us. And that what God is after is a people who would have a redemptive presence in society. And so to have a redemptive presence, it means uh, that, that we don't withdraw, that we engage, that we're among, that we're present among our uh, neighbors, among our uh, neighborhood and among our city, that you're public with your faith uh, in your workplace and in your families. It, it means that we're present. And, and then to be redemptive means that we don't assimilate. Right? We, we don't assimilate and, uh, and simply start living like the city that we're in. So there are values that our culture and our context have. Uh, and those values some of them are really beautiful and right and holy. I, I think if I could affirm something in the Heights, um, I, I think that most of our neighbors around here really do care for the least among us. I, I don't hear uh, a lot of complaining about people who are vulnerable inside of our neighborhood, inside of this part of the city. I, I think generally I, I see a neighborhood and a, uh, and a society that cares about the least among us. This is beautiful and good and right and honorable in the sight of God. And at the same time, uh, I, I live among an extremely, and we live among an extremely affluent culture. And it is hard to express uh, what affluence can do to our hearts and how greed can just subtly start slipping in. And, and let me tell you, I am not preaching to you right now. I'm, I'm preaching to a mirror. This is the DNA of my own heart. Greed has subtly slipped in, and I need God to redeem it. But I need to be aware of it so that I don't simply assimilate, but I might be a part of us having a redemptive presence inside of our city. So we don't assimilate, and we don't withdraw. So broken relationship, one, is with the world. Broken relationship, two, um, is with God. At the end of verse five, it said, those who do not fear me. One commentator said that's, that's a summary statement of what he just said in verse 5, and it transitions us to verse 6. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes, and you have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, 
how shall we return? And so broken relationship too is with God. That phrase, turned aside from my statutes, it's, it's the only time in the Scriptures that it's used. And it's this, this phrase that he's trying to say, you have completely rejected my law. Completely. You have rejected what it is that I have said that I want for you. You have rejected my law. We have to ask why. We, we don't just simply ask what they were doing. We ask why they were doing it. This is the heartbeat of the Scriptures. And one of the things I love most about the Bible is it will not let you, if you're willing to engage with it, Christian, non-Christian in the room, if you're willing to engage with the Bible, the Bible will not let you sit on the surface of life. It will force you into the deep waters of your own heart. And it's doing that with Israel right now because we have to ask, why? Why? Why would they reject the law? Why would they turn from these statutes? Why would they do this? Why would Israel at this time do this? And the answer is really back in works, uh, weeks 1 and 2. And two, and two, two, two. Weeks 1 and 2, we did they all had this grand vision of what the future was going to be like. This, this grand idea of what their life was going to be like, and that vision hadn't come to pass. That vision had not come to pass yet, and so they started to believe God is withholding from me. God is withholding from me. God is withholding something that I thought he promised to me, and if God is withholding from me, I am not about to obey him. Right? It, it, Israel is being like the child. Right? So you, if you've got a four-year-old, I was going to say like my son, but you can't really beat my son in submission. So um, you can't spank him enough to make him. So if you've got a child, you know, like my daughter. She's a sweet little girl. Um, <laughs> like my daughter. Like you can punish them into obedience. Right? You, you can punish a child into obedience. But if that child doesn't know that you love them, they're not going to willingly obey. And Israel not knowing the love of God for them, was not willingly obeying. This brings us to our next broken relationship because if God is withholding, if God is not being generous with Himself, with us, there is certainly no reason uh, why I'm going to then be generous uh, with my money. Broken relationship number three, our money. Verse eight. Will man rob God? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me. The whole nation of you bring the full tithe. That means 10% of what you have. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse. The storehouse is a place on the temple where they would store food. And so here's what's happening. Israel is withholding. They're, they're not giving 10% to the storehouse where they would store up food to be distributed to others. And God uses, God uses some of the most aggressive language in the Bible to deal with this. What did he just say? You are robbing me. Robbing me. Why would he call it that? Let's keep reading. So bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test, it says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven. Look at that. And thereby put me to the test. 
says the Lord of hosts, test and see if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not, shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts, that all nations will call you blessed. For you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Here's why he calls it robbing. God is saying that in your greed, you're robbing me of the chance to display my generosity to you. And you're robbing others of their chance to see my generosity. In your greed, you're robbing me of the chance to open up and dump the heavens out on you. Look at the wording that he used. Watch me open the heavens. Watch me hold back what's destroying your crops. Watch the nations. Watch me work. In your greed, you are robbing me of my chance to pour out blessing on you. And you're robbing the nations of the chance to watch. You're robbing the nations of the chance to watch and go, hey, hey, maybe my God's not all my God is cracked up to be. Maybe that's the true God. This is weighty, difficult words that he's saying. And, and let me tell you how it applies to mission drift. You want to know if you're drifting? Like if, like if you want to know, man, is my, life, uh, is my life wired in such a way that what's most important to God is most important to me, look at your budget. Look at your budget and then ask why. Look at where do my dollars go and then ask why do they go there. See, Israel's budget was a living mirror and so was ours. And Israel's budget told a story that they uh, they could not deny. And what comes next is revealing. Verse 13. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord, but you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said, is it, it is vain to serve God. What is, the profit, what is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in, as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant and blessed evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. And so Israel is looking around. They're looking at the nations around them uh, and they're seeing these um, wicked, evil nations. And at that time, there were some wicked, evil nations that were getting rich while Israel got poor. And they're looking around and going, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me, God? Like, like you're for me? I, I'm looking around at the nations around me and you want to tell me that you're for me? You want to call me? You want to say that I'm robbing you? Look at what's happening around. Are you kidding me? This is Israel. And here's why it's revealing. Here's why this is revealing about the heart of the nation of Israel. Because what it reveals is that what they were after wasn't God, but what God could provide. You see, they, they weren't after God. They wanted what they thought God would provide, and what they wanted God to provide was what the nations around them had. And there are some of us in this room right now who, if I could just say this, 
in a loving, gentle, gracious, but let me be clear and direct kind of way. There are some of us in here right now playing the same game that Israel played. You're in here and you're, you're not really after God. You're after what God provides. And so you're sitting here and you're thinking, man, I'm, I'm in. Like, I can do this. Like, like I want to be a part of this if you give me a job. God, I, I want you if you give me a spouse. God, I want, I want you if you fill in the blank. And if your heart is, God, I want you if, then you're playing the same game that Israel played and you're after what God provides, not God himself. And here's the reality. That's all of us on some level. On some level, that's all of us. The issue is, does your if consume you? Like, are you fighting against your if, or have you given yourself to your if? That's the issue. Israel had given themselves to their if. And the problem is, the problem is, this is a deeply rooted heart issue. uh, And this heart issue that led to these three broken relationships, world, God, money, is not something you can simply just fix. Right, so a couple weeks ago, uh, I gave the illustration. It's like me saying, I'm going to be a great singer. Like, I'm going to be the next Adele. You watch me. I think she is the best singer in the world right now. Somebody agrees. You can't simply look at your heart and say, you know what? I'm going to love God. I mean, I'm going to do it this time. I'm, I'm going to start being generous. I, you know what? I am going to love my neighbor and I'm going to be there for my neighbor. I'm going to simply do it. That's not how the heart works. It is a broken, polluted heart that has led you down the road that would say, I'm not doing X, Y, and Z. And I can look at my life and I can see broken relationships around me. I can see my drifting heart from God and I can look at my budget and I can see my greed. I might not want to call it greed because it's my budget. I'm talking to myself then. But, but that's what I'm looking at. And so what's the solution? Verse 16. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written. It was written before me. A book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. So what book is he talking about? What what book is it that Malachi is talking about? Well, there's two real options in the Scriptures. There's the book of judgment and the book of life. Judgment, Exodus 32. But now if you will forgive their sin, but if not, this is Moses, the famous hero Moses, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. In the book of life, Revelation 20, And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. You see, here's what happened on the cross. If we, if we take this book of remembrance that Malachi is talking about and we fast forward, Here's what happened on the cross. At the moment of the cross, when Jesus was hanging there, 
when nails were being driven through his hands, when blood was pouring down his face, when he was crying out, Oh God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The book of judgment and the book of life were being written. That when he was crying out, Why have you forsaken me? And when the sky went dark, our sin was landing on Jesus, and Jesus was blotted out so that we could be invited in. This is the book that was being written from beginning to end. And the story climaxed in Christ and what Christ did. And we're in Christ and have Christ and Christ is with us. We can take Christ back to Malachi and we can go back to verse 1 of Malachi and we can answer the question, who is the messenger? The, the first messenger of Malachi 3.1 was not Jesus. The second one was and here's the beauty of who Jesus is, that He is both the messenger and the message. He is both the one who told the story and the one that the story was about. He is the messenger and the message. And when we take Jesus back to Malachi 3, we have verse 17 gets said to us, and they shall be Mine. And, they sh and all of their brokenness Israel, I know you. I know your heart. In all of your brokenness, they shall be mine, says the Lord. Says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares the son who serves him. Hear the Lord saying to you, this is the Father, God the Father saying to you right now in this moment because of Christ through Malachi, you are mine. You are mine. You are my treasured possession. The Father is saying to you, you are my treasured possession. And if you're in this room right now, if I could just pause. I just want to pause the sermon. And I want to say to men and women in this room right now, who grew up with a distant father, who, who grew up with a father that may be physically present, but certainly wasn't emotionally present. And maybe in your home, growing up, the words, you're my treasured possession, you are mine, was never said. I want you to know that the Father, because of Christ, is stepping into the gap and saying to you, you are mine. You are my treasured possession. And because the Father is saying to that, you are free to step into the undercurrent of your pain and the wounds of life and look at how your Father wounds have affected you. Because listen, we all, we all have them. Every one of us. My kids are going to have them. There is one perfect Father and I'm not it. And the Father is stepping into the gap saying, you are mine. And so you're free now to get under the undercurrent knowing that the pain there is scary, but it might actually lead to healing.
And when you hear the words, you are mine. You are my treasured possession. The sign that you wear around your neck is no longer failed marriage. It's no longer undateable. It's no longer unemployable. It's no longer uneducated. The sign around your neck is you are mine, says the Father. The sign around your neck reads treasured possession. And that's the sign around your neck. It takes us to verse 18 and back to our theme, the danger of mission drift. Verse 18. Then once more, then once more you shall see the distinction, the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve Him. What was God after in Israel? What what is it that God wanted in the nation of Israel? He wanted a distinctive people, a people who would live out the presence of God among the nations. And He would send them back to build the temple and then to put Himself on display for their neighbors. And the mission of Israel is the mission of sojourn. To live out and be a redemptive presence. To live among their neighbors, but not like their neighbors. To take this grace of God that we have and be a living reflection of this grace to the people around us. And so let me, um, let me maybe land the plane this way. Because I know that there are some who might be asking, hey, we titled this series, The Danger of Mission Drift. When are we going to talk about mission? And I think that if that's your question, I think probably what needs to happen is we need to redefine what mission is. Because mission in the Scriptures is not about what you do, but about who you are. And then what you do flowing out of who you are. You see, you can do a lot of things and it not be mission. Now you can do and do and do and do, but if your heart is drifting from God, that's not mission. What we do flows out of who we are. What we do flows out of who we are. And what God is after is a people with a pure heart, captivated by His grace. And so I, I love what we do at Sojourn. I, I love our ministry model. I love our DNA. I believe in our DNA. Make disciples, multiply parishes, plant churches. All day long. I mean, I'm all day long I'm in. Moving in the neighborhood. Join a neighborhood parish. Gather on Sundays. Come on. What is more beautiful than that? Come on, let's live near one another so we can put Christ on display throughout the week. This is beautiful. This is wonderful, but we can make thousands of disciples. Multiply hundreds of parishes. Plant dozens of churches. And if the heart of sojourn drifts from who God is, that's not mission. That's not a win. That's not a win. The win is that we would make thousands of disciples, multiply hundreds of parishes, plant dozens and dozens of churches because our heart has been so gripped and captivated by grace that that is the natural overflow. That is the win. 
What we do flows out of who we are or it's not mission. What we do flows out of who we are. And so as a church, if we want to guard ourselves and we want to plead and pray, oh God, protect us from mission drift. Oh God, don't let us be like Israel. God, let us not be Israel. Here's what we don't need. Here's what we don't need. We don't need mountains and mountains of strategy. What we need are hearts captivated by the grace of God who are drifting toward God, not away from God. That's what we need. And I love what we do. Believe in what we do. Make, multiply, plant. Come on. But you can make, multiply, plant all day long from a heart that has grown cold and stale and hard, and that's not mission. Oh God, would you by your mercy and by your grace protect our hearts, guard our hearts from drifting? Would we see, would we see Jesus, the one who was both the message and the messenger who came and in the cross wrote the book of life and the book of judgment so that as 1 John says, our hearts can be cleansed and may be that, that, what guards and protects Sojourn Heights and Sojourn Houston from mission drift. Let's pray.